0: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Bible in the chair in front of you and flip to page 897. 897. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Good morning, it's good to see you all here. And uh, it's good to have so many of you also join us online. And just like our brother Eugene said, uh, we apologize uh, for the technical difficulties. They were unexpected last week. And uh, I really do thank you for your patience. Um, But I'm glad that you can join us this morning. And so as we begin today's study of God's word, let's start with a prayer. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. I was kind of contemplating on whether to share this or not, but I don't know why, I, I, perhaps why I wouldn't. I shared this with some of you, but uh, uh, last uh, a little more than last month now, we went on a hiking trip, and uh, this is what the staff wanted to do. The staff wanted to go hiking, and uh, they particularly enjoy the scramble, and that's of course when there is one in Palisades Parkway where you go down for about an hour or so, and then you scramble across the rocks for about two hours, and then you go back up for an hour, and so. We went, and there was this little tiny kind of incline or decline down. It was a little dirt patch, and then a turn left. And then beyond it was just a cliff, so I kind of slipped. Everybody kind of slipped, but I kind of slipped. And it was like kind of the perfect storm kind of slip. So I think I had cross trainers that were like five years old. My hands weren't free. Um... So I slipped as well. Pastor Paul slipped first and then Junseok slipped. I slipped as well, and then I think my front foot got caught and I fell off the cliff. And so I went down about 30 feet. Uh, and I remember tumbling uh, down this cliff and you would think like the things that you would think about are like the life flashing before your eyes. And now that I've almost died, I can tell you for a fact that is not what flashed across my mind. My mind was going to, why in the world am I still tumbling? That's that's seriously what I thought. That's what I was thinking. Uh, And then after I stopped tumbling, I thought it would never end. It felt like an eternity. I kept on falling. And so I didn't know it was about 30 feet down until I looked up, and Pastor Paul was there pacing, and he was saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, right? And then I, Sam was behind me. Uh, Sam, was, Sam just had his hand out over the cliff, like huge, like that. And then Christine had, like, uh, tears welling up in her eyes. And then Chunzak was uh, started yelling, call 911, call 911. And so I got up, and I just wanted to make sure I was okay. And I just said, ah, don't call 911. And it really is. And I think about it, I've thought about it, you know, quite often, obviously. And I seriously didn't die or break a bone. Uh, I just got up with some scratches and bruises. I was bleeding, like, from my face and stuff. But if you look at me now, it's healed. Praise God. And so, uh, you know, there are things that you kind of think about. Like, God can literally take me away at any time. At any time. It could be just while you're hiking, Uh, it could be tomorrow. And I really thank God that I have, you know, uh, more time with my wife, my family, and especially uh, with you guys, with this church. And that's something that I have been thinking about for a while, but especially in the last month or so. The question that does come up to me is, what is my primary job as a minister? What is my primary job as a minister? Uh, In recent days, this question and the theme surrounding this question has continually been occupying my mind because I've realized it's not just me asking this question. There are a lot of ministers, especially young ministers, who are also asking this question. What's the job of a pastor? In fact, there are books written to tell you what the job of the pastor is. Is it to be the CEO of this organization so that it can flourish? Is it to be everyone's friend, to make you feel loved? Is it to lead the way then to social reform, like many other young pastors in recent days believe that's what their mantle is? And to a certain degree, I will do some of these things. And to a certain degree, I will not do some of these things. But the real question is, what is primary? My job is, as the church fathers have been saying, and what I have stated before earlier in this year, the goal of the position that I have As long as God gives me breath, as long as God gives me life to live, the goal of the pastoral ministry is to bring people to a place of submission to God's Word. That's my job. My job is to teach, yes, but teach the whole counsel of God and the Word of God so that you might respond to it. And I sincerely believe that it is then you can solve every social issue, racial issue, economic issue, familial issue, by introducing the principles in God's Word, which offers to us the biblical solution to the problems we face today. This is why we went over books like A Biblical Answer for Racial Unity. This is why as we study the Word, we know the answer to... How can we vote? Look at the platforms that are being espoused by the current parties. Which one holds to the biblical truth the most? Life, freedom to gather and worship, justice. You know, I've asked the podcast team to take a break from our normally scheduled topics to go over the Christian worldview as we address certain political platforms? What does the Bible say about this? Are there any ambiguities? What is clear? And even what is not I wanted to go over? Where are we to extend charity in platforms, and where do we see clear, unambiguous commands in Scripture? Because if I do have a short time to live, And mind you, whether it's five years or 50 years, it's all short in relative terms. I don't want to spend my time tippy-toeing around the truth. The preacher is to be in fear of God more than any man and even more than the devil. And I'm afraid that this is what's getting lost in our culture. It's about placating to the general tide of what is going on in the culture ever so slightly you would hear a change, ever so slowly you would hear this twisting of the word until you are caught in a mighty rushing wave and you are now in the middle of a storm that will debilitate your ship. And I see now the current is picking up. We are slowly leaving God's principles and only reciting them, saying them, spewing them out like an overarching thematic generality so that we could make excuses to side and adopt the ways of the world. As if the world ever had a solution, a lasting solution to sin. Instead, I hear absolutely inane statements from politicians and leaders alike, like things like, the vast majority of protests are peaceful. This statistically is absolutely true. Absolutely true. When you hear words on the TV from people that are our leaders say the vast majority of these protests are peaceful, it's true. 93% of the protests are in fact peaceful, according to the ACLED, leaving only 7% of the protests being violent. And this is what they purported. Only 7% of the protests are violent. And we've had thousands and thousands of protests, but it still leaves hundreds and hundreds of violent protests. And if you've read the word and you remember what the word says, if a little leaven leavens the whole lump, as a leader, condemn the leaven. Get rid of it and then you won't have the rest of the batch get rotten. You know, I went to Costco the other day, and they were selling us, I think, Florida, sun-kissed oranges, and I was very excited. And I looked at the box, and I took it home, and my wife saw it too. We were very excited to make freshly squeezed orange juice. And so as we took out the first few oranges on the top, we saw that the bottom right corner was completely rotten. It was filled with like, it was just covered with fungus and mold. And it had spread to almost all the oranges. And I know that Costco didn't hold it for weeks and weeks. They must have held it for maybe days at most. But this is what we see. If you see something rotten, you must call out what is rotten, take what's rotten out. Otherwise, it will leaven the whole lump. Otherwise, it will destroy and rot the rest of it. This is what we ought to teach. You have to get rid of it, then the rest of the batch isn't rotten. And even this kind of clear and evident discernment is lost in our leaders today. And is there a problem with society? No matter how big or small, what we are to do as a church, what you should expect from me is to state the biblical principle And that's how we solve the problem. But what if not only our society, but even our churches are biblically illiterate? Perhaps you've only heard hype sermons, sermons that make you feel good, that give you a a nice pick-me-up. So when you walk out, you're like, yeah, I feel great, I'm on cloud nine. And while a sermon can do that at times, that is not the goal of a sermon. Perhaps you heard woke sermons, sermons that make you feel smarter and more intelligent, more capable. And while a sermon can do that at times, that is not the goal of a sermon. Perhaps you heard therapy sermons, sermons that help you emotionally heal, And while a sermon can do that at times, that is not the goal of a sermon. The goal of a sermon is to glorify God and put you in submission to God's Word. Those other things may or may not come. But if you put those other things first, then you have now effectively put the cart in front of the horse and now you are going nowhere. True sermons... That are in submission to God's word won't make you hyped, but humbled. They won't make you feel woke, but they will leave you in wonder. And they won't make you therapized, but thankful. To be in submission to scripture is then to be in a place of blessing. And I wanted to start off our new sermon series and our Saturday morning prayers with Psalm 1 because it states that the blessed one does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. To be in submission to Scripture is to be in a place of blessing. And we'll see that clearly being taught in this passage this morning. Because the question that the Corinthians were facing is, how do we deal with one another? How do we deal with one another? And the scriptures are clear how we are to deal with one another. Take, for example, Ephesians chapter 4, 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Jesus says in John 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. Jesus took time to wash his disciples' feet, something that even a slave wouldn't want to do. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. In Colossians 3.12, it says, put on then as God's Chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive And here is the ultimate standard that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. The attitude that a Christian must have toward another Christian. Jesus says in Luke 17 verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. That means wake up, pay attention. And then he says this, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive. Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. There is nothing that anyone has ever done to you that is unforgivable. And yet, here were the Corinthians not only suing each other, but they were suing each other to the point of defrauding each other. Somehow, for some reason, they came to a place where they convinced themselves this is the right thing to do. You owe me. I deserve this. Instead of, let me do as Christ did when he washed the feet of his disciples. And this is the beleaguered church. What was it beleaguered by? They were manifesting now every sin imaginable. What starts out with disunity, umbrellas into a whole plethora of sin. What may seem to start out with just a damp ground led to them trudging up to their knees in mud. And how then can you run the race set before you? You're stuck. You're stuck. You're not growing anymore. You aren't standing on the solid rock. You're ignoring the high place that Christ has set the church on. You're suing each other. Instead of following the guidelines of Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, Then you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Instead of taking it to the church and going through the process of discipline that the Lord had commanded, they were going to secular courts. Why? Why were they going outside? They didn't want justice. They wanted to get more than they deserved, and they were now defrauding each other. And Paul asks this that we studied last week. Is there no one wise among you to settle disputes? Do you not have one wise elder? Apparently not. And this is to your shame. Brother versus brother. Christians who are going to be given the task to judge the world, you go against each other. And even if you were to win the lawsuit, in verse 7 He says, you are already defeated. The testimony of the church is wounded. Why not be defrauded instead? Why not take it? Because here is the Christ-like attitude. Forgive as I have forgiven you. Jesus even preached, On the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. When you do the things that the Lord commands, it's because you are called to act like Him. And I get it. This is an incredibly high standard. I agree with you wholeheartedly that if you think this is really a high standard, but nonetheless, it is the pattern that Christ has set for us to emulate. And you might think to yourself, especially if you've been wrong by someone in this church too, But this person or these people need to learn their lesson. And so we have taken the seat of God when he specifically says, vengeance is mine. That is God's business. Our job is forgiveness, charity, giving the example to the world Christ gave to us. Now, I'm going to start with all this as a review of last week, but I want to mention there is, however, a caveat. This is shown multiple times in Acts when Peter is told by the rulers not to preach the word. Don't preach the word. And he doesn't go, oh, we must obey our leaders. But instead he says that we must obey God rather than men. Paul also gives clear examples In Acts 16, when he is released from prison, he cites and and he claims his Roman citizenship. In Acts 22, when he is about to get flogged, he cites again his Roman citizenship. And that wasn't because he didn't want to get flogged or whipped. Because how many times did he get flogged? In 2 Corinthians 11, he shares with the Corinthian church Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, endangered from river. Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He puts my experience on the cliff to shame. So it's not that he didn't want to get whipped. And in Acts 25, there is also an example. He appeals to Caesar So what is made clear is that whenever or wherever the word of God or the work of God is at stake, you have the right to claim legal privileges. If the government came to me and said, I cannot preach, now they are in the category of the the Lord's mandates. In these cases, you would go to the courts to protect your rights. But it wouldn't be for personal gain, is what Paul is teaching. It's not for personal comfort. It's not so that you could get ahead in the world. It's for the work of God that is set before you. If someone tried to come to CGS and close down this church, you could bet your begonias that we would fight it. There are two churches today with pastors who I hold In high regard, perhaps higher in regard than any other pastor in the pulpit today, that are going through something like this. In LA, California, John MacArthur's church could not meet inside or outside because of these absolutely ridiculous restrictions that wouldn't let them meet. You can't meet outside. But even if you meet outside, you can't meet with anyone outside that's not in your immediate family. Otherwise, you have to quarantine for 14 days. It doesn't matter if you are socially distanced. Any gathering, with the blatant exception given to protesters. In D.C., Mark Devers' church was not granted permission to meet inside or outside either. And so his church sued the municipality to let them meet so that they could worship as God dictates to his people, this is how you should worship me. This is a quote from Mark Dever, and this is what he says. Ultimately, the church is not something we want to be in as a building. It's a people that we want to be with. That's why Christians always gather so that we can be with the people of God and do the things that Jesus has called us to do. We ought to pray for these pastors and their churches so that they could exercise not only their religious freedom, but to carry out God's commission for the proclamation of his word. Every time we can gather, I realize how fortunate we are that we can gather and worship God. But the bottom line is the lawsuit isn't for personal gain or privilege, but to sustain the work of God. And this is the heart of the matter as we get to finish this passage this week on lawsuits in verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul starts off this sentence with the do you not know statement. Don't you know? Don't you know your relation to the world? Don't you know the standing of the church? Don't you know you are called to be different from the world? And yet here you are acting just like them, swallowing whole the solutions and ideologies that they offer. Don't you know that the unrighteous or the wicked And this word unrighteous in the Greek is right next to the word God. So it would have read something like this. Verse 9 would have read something like this. Don't you know the unrighteous, God's kingdom, they will not inherit. They are placed in stark contrast with each other. He's telling the Corinthian church that they are acting inconsistent with the behavior of Christ. And what is the kingdom of God? Isn't it opposing the kingdom of this world? When Jesus first preached in Matthew, didn't he say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? So to repent is to turn away from the things of this world and to turn to God. That's why it's hinged in this way in this sentence. Unrighteousness is one way. And God's way is another. And then he says, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. You can't get along with the world and think that you're getting along with God. The ways of the world and the ways of God are diametrically in opposition with one another. And then Paul goes on to list these kinds of activities. And these activities are just as powerful in the world today as they were 2,000 years ago in Corinth. If you take a survey today, many people would still say they believe in God. Although statistically that number is dropping rapidly, they believe in God. Do you believe in God? They will say yes, but that's the problem. That's the problem. The real question isn't if you believe in God or if you believe in a God. The real question to self-attesting Christians is, do you believe God? Not do you believe in God. You can say that you believe in Jesus, but do you believe Jesus when he says you must forgive? Do you believe God when he says you must follow his laws and his commands and these things are for our good? Do you actually believe God? Otherwise, this list that we're about to go through is just a bunch of gobbledygook to you. This is just a list that maybe 2,000 years ago you think would have made sense to the Corinthians, but now, of course, we know better. We know better than what the scriptures state. And speaking of states, look at the current state of the church when she abandons the word of God, the word that God gives his people. Every single liberal mainline denomination is drastically shrinking, but not so that adhere to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. By God's grace, he is still retaining and attracting people to the Reformed Orthodox faith. Meaning, ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, secundum verbum Dei. The church reformed, always reforming, according to the word of God. That is the key characteristic of what constitutes a healthy church. Believe God. What he says really is good. Don't be deceived because the world will try to convince you otherwise. And in the end, you won't be able to get away with conforming to the world. And Paul categorizes exactly what the world is like. This is the lifestyle that the world says is good, not just in 2020, but has always said it's good. Sexual immorality. Pornea. You can't get away now from seeing images of pornea in shows, movies, magazines, social media. We've deceived our young women that posting images or dance moves that are sexually explicit is what makes you powerful and beautiful. We've convinced our young men that these are the primary things that you should be desiring. And is it any wonder that marriages don't last? Adultery and other sexual aberrations like child porn are being celebrated. And people respond to a statement like this saying, Look at these Christian Bible thumpers trying to enforce their own values on us. If only they would let us do what we want without hindrance, we would be happy. But the Bible admonishes its readers, don't be deceived. When God gives you what you want, that's not a blessing. It's judgment. Idolaters spirituality is on the rise in 2020. We'll believe in anything that lets us off the hook from God's law. Even political movements, as we have gone over, turn into spiritual movements. Instead of following the true God, we would trade him in for a golden calf, which is what the people of Israel did. Pointing to the golden idol, they would exclaim that that, This people of Israel, this golden idol is your Elohim. It's your God that brought you out of Egypt. You can say you believe in God, but if it's not the God of the Bible, it's a golden calf. Adulterers, the sanctity of marriage isn't taken seriously anymore. The idea that God had set us up or set up by His grace the exclusive joining together of a man and woman for the benefit of humanity now seems absurd. We'll do marriage as we please. We'll define marriage as we please. This, by the way, is backwards. Men who practice homosexuality, these are actually two words in the Greek, one from malakos, which means effeminate, and the other word is arsenokoites, Koite means intercourse, and arson means man. So, malakos and arsenokoites, when these two are paired, is translated as homosexuality. Homosexuality was a common practice in the Greco-Roman culture. During this time, we would even see Nero. Emperor Nero would take on a boy named Sporus, castrate him, and then marry him. After Nero's death, he, Sporus, would eventually get passed on to Otho. But Otho, a few months later, would commit suicide because he would lose a battle. And then they would capture Sporus, and then they would plan to publicly humiliate him by putting him in the gladiator games. And gladiator games were themed, by the way. If you, um, we went over this a lot, but they were themed. And they would, uh, they would, um, they would publicly humiliate him by putting him in the gladiator games where he would get raped. And Sporus would avoid this humiliation by committing suicide before the games. What's recorded is that when he ended his life, he was still in his teenage years. The Greco-Roman culture elevated and romanticized homosexual activity where they would write about how this kind of love is greater than any kind of love. If you read Plato or any of the earlier Greek works, you would start to see this is actually true. They actually believe this. And so this wasn't just 2,000 years ago, though. Even earlier, when the Israelites were in Egypt and they were going to the Canaanite land, This was prevalent. And the Lord would write in his law in Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. This is what Satan wants to do. He wants to wipe out sex roles because the roles that God has given glorifies him. Thieves. When you take something from someone without their permission, it's from the word klepti, where we get kleptomania. You cannot steal and you can't convince yourself that something that is in the possession of someone else somehow belongs to you. The mental gymnastics that you have to do to get these, to get to this place will leave your conscience seared, and you start babbling incoherent inconsistencies, trying to rationalize it to someone else. Ah, they deserve to get stolen. The greedy. Ephesians chapter 5, 5 is also, trans, the same Greek word is translated there as covetous. You want something of this world so badly, but you want something you cannot have. In James 4, it says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Greed is where, in the end, you want to make yourself a friend with the world. Drunkards. I saw this fascinating statistic where the more drunk a country was, it was the more irreligious it was. Like the top drunk countries in the world are countries like in the Russia area like Moldova and Russia, they they rank in the top areas. And where the country was highly religious, uh, it was like the lowest um, drunk count, like countries in the Middle East. But the Bible warns against drunkenness. As Why? Because it leads to debauchery. Debauchery or the word depravity. It should suffice to say that the desire to get drunk, if you have a desire to get drunk, It isn't because your focus is on your sanctification. Revilers or slanderers are people who verbally abuse others. You talk about others in a non-edifying manner, and these are people who usually don't even think that much about talking about others in a slanderous manner. It just comes out. But what does the Bible say about slander? When you gossip and you slander, does God take that seriously? And if God takes it seriously, how much does he take it seriously? Psalm 101.5, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. That's pretty serious. If you're talking about somebody, slandering them, that's what the Bible says. Well, Jesus must have been nicer, right? In Matthew 12.36 He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. So yes, God takes slander seriously. Swindlers. In Luke 18.11, the same word is translated as extortioners. These are thieves, but of a violent kind, who seek to destroy their victims. They want to utterly annihilate their victims. That's a swindler. That's an extortioner. And like it said in the first verse that we read, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. These characteristics are unrighteous, and they oppose God. But the Bible doesn't end there with the first half of verse 9. There is a second half of verse 9, and he continues, Paul continues, and such were some of you. You used to be like this, but you aren't any longer is the implication. You were on one side, unrighteous, the ones who wouldn't inherit the kingdom of God, but now you're not. And this is salvation. It's a total transformation. There is nothing in this old life that's worth keeping that you have now been born again. In Christ, you are a new creation. In John 3, Jesus teaches Nicodemus about if you want to see heaven, you have to be born again. This word born again is from the word genethe, Ganethe sounds very similar to the word that we went over, genao, genao means beget, but Ganethe is from genao and anothe, which means born, genao, and anothe, which means above. That's what born again means. Born from above. And when you are born from above, you are a new creation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are God's masterpiece. And such were some of you, is what Paul says. Such were some of you. And then the word comes, but. But is from the word Allah. Allah is an emphatic word. That means but or certainly, certainly. And it occurs not only once, I know it's translated once, but it occurs three times in the Greek. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. The habitual pattern of sin has now been broken in your life, and now the mold that you're being shaped into isn't the world, but Christ. The washing, like it says in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing is the new birth, baptism, which signifies the heavenly birth. But you were washed. Sanctified means that God is setting you apart, making you holy. You are no longer being molded by the world, but of Christ. But you were sanctified. Justified is a legal term of acquittal. It's to declare as righteous. Because of Christ's atoning death, we are now accepted as just before God. We are now accepted as gods. But you were justified. John Calvin would hold that these three things are referring to the same thing, but in different angles. They are dimensions of a trifold understanding that we are a new creation. And this trifold understanding is given to us by a triune God. Paul ends with In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our god the trifold work of your salvation was done by the triune god in the name of the lord jesus by the spirit of our god this is what scholars call the unobtrusive trinitarianism it is jesus who overturned the power of satan and by his spirit we are born again to the praise and glory of the father In the beginning, I had said that only those with the active submission to Jesus Christ and His Word would inherit the kingdom of God. But we are actively able to Christ through the acts that have been done for us, which we have now received by the Spirit. The reason you are able to do what God commands you to do is because of what has already been done for you. This is why we can forgive one another. You can forgive because you have been forgiven. And this is why Jesus goes, pay attention. Pay attention. Don't aimlessly meander back to your old ways. Don't let your heart get hardened. Do you know the disciples, when they saw Jesus like walk on the water, they did they like Jesus calmed the storm? They didn't know how to how to like make, what to make of it. And there it says they had hardened their hearts. And it says something interesting. We went over this, right? They hardened their hearts because they didn't understand about the loaves. And you would be like, what does the water event have to do with the loaves? Don't let your heart get hardened. What it means is they didn't know who Jesus Christ was. Don't let your heart get hardened. It means believe God believe God. As we follow God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit, we witness then the church growing in holiness, unity, and maturation in Christ. So we are not just people who claim to believe in God, but we are people who enjoy believe God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. This is a word that continually convicts us, changes us. And Lord, we pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would transform us. These things that have been listed are impossible to follow, God. We cannot do this on our own accord, no matter how hard we try, even if we think it's right. But Lord, we confess now we need your Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to give us his strength, so that we may be able to follow you and put ourselves in submission to you. Teach us your ways, O God, and help us to rejoice and be glad, believing you that these are good, these are righteous, and these things are holy, pleasing our Lord in heaven. Let's take this time to pray. And wherever the Holy Spirit is convicting you, I challenge you and I admonish you to lift that up in prayer to the Lord. It's the Lord that transforms hearts, it's the Lord that makes a new creation. And this is something that we must ask of Him to do. Let's pray.